Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Michael Christie at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Good evening to you all. Welcome. And as I was uh, worshipping, it just uh, was filled with thankfulness at how blessed we are to gather together with like-minded people in the house of the Lord, fellowshipping the one God as one people. You know, we take it for granted sometimes. You know, we take for granted the fact that we can pick and choose which church we go to, that we have an abundance of choice across this city. Lots of very, very good churches at that, and yet it wasn't always that way, at least in the days of the early church. So we praise God for that. Well, it's my uh, privilege tonight to bring you the message continuing our series, By My Spirit, where we've been looking through the book of Acts at the power encounters of God coming to the early church. And our message tonight is entitled, Who Are You, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And at the risk of uh, (laughs) spoilers, uh, it's the question that the Apostle Paul or Saul as he's also known as, and as I'll refer to him generally tonight, it's the question that Saul asks when he encounters Jesus for the first time on the road to Damascus. And it's a question that comes with an answer that completely changes the course of his life. It's a question that sets him off on this journey to becoming one of the most important people in the history of our faith, apart from Jesus himself, of course. You know, Paul is uh, credited with writing uh, up to 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. His teaching and his life has been used uh, to understand the gospel, our Christian life and doctrine for thousands of years. And he was the key, one of the key reasons why the gospel spread so rapidly and effectively uh, in the days of the early church all across the Roman Empire as he led countless people to the Lord and established churches everywhere he went. Uh, But in my reading as I was preparing for today, and just to give you an insight into how my um, sorry mind works sometimes, I came across a quote uh, from an early second century text that's been preserved today. It's not the Bible, I stress to add, but uh, I didn't want to pump Paul up too much without providing a counterbalance. And the quote from this uh, apocryphal text called The Acts of Paul describes him physically like this. It was too funny for me not to share. It says, uh, Paul was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. <laughs> I just thought of all the descriptions to be recorded as in, the, in history and for me to be reading it out to you today, which is a bit cruel, I confess... <laughs> You know, I don't think it was these good looks that uh, helped him lead people to the Lord. <laughs> but he was a champion for the cause of Christ, like few others before or after him. But that too wasn't always the case. You know, the first time we meet Saul is in the story of Stephen. Acts 6 says that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, who performed great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. One day he gets falsely accused of blaspheming against God and the Jewish religious authorities irate as they hear his witness, pick him up, drag him out of the city 
and stone him to death. While this is going on, uh, Acts 7 and 8 says that Saul was there watching their clothes. I'm not sure why their clothes needed to be watched, but he was there doing that for them as they threw the rocks at Stephen. And in a chilling verse, really, in Acts 8 verse 1, it says, Saul was there giving approval to his death. And the event with Stephen seems to set off something terrible in Saul. Scripture goes on to say he begins to destroy the church in Jerusalem, going from house to house and dragging Christian men and women off to prison. You know, imagine that. Imagine today in our own homes and there comes this thump on the door and they burst in and they drag you away in front of your children off to prison. Well, Saul was responsible for this. And he seems to be so successful at this that he begins to hunt for Christians in other cities. He's not content with his work in Jerusalem. He wants to go out and to seek more of these people and to do the same. And this is where we pick up in his story in our reading today, which comes from Acts 9, 1 to 19. And uh, Mike Ram's going to read that for us. Thanks, Mike. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see him again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus.
Thanks, Mike. When I read this passage uh, as I was preparing for today, I couldn't uh, help but think of this strange game that my kids like to play. And I call it a game which is a bit generous because uh, to me it's a bit, bit more like torture. But basically around bedtime, what they'll do when they need to go and brush their teeth or go to the toilet before bed, one of them will rush ahead and uh, hide in a dark room or around a door. And then one of them's walking along, this poor unsuspecting sibling, they'll jump out and they'll say, boo, and scare them. And of course, the poor victim uh, stumbles back and uh, lets out their own yell and, uh, but <laughs> thankfully, most of the time, they all la- end up laughing together and everyone's okay, and Sarah and I don't have to step in other, from, otherwise, other from taking our own pulses as we respond to the noise. But, you know, Jesus seems to do something similar here with Saul. He just appears out of nowhere in a flash of light. You know, the word in Greek is, is all surrounding light. He's all consumed by the light of Jesus And his presence is so powerful and tangible that it knocks Saul to the ground and leaves him blind. And I don't know about you, but that hasn't been my personal experience of Jesus. I haven't been knocked to the ground to him, so to speak. I certainly haven't been left blind uh, in the presence of his physical glory as it manifested. Uh, But there is things that we can learn from Saul's conversion and calling experience that are valuable for helping ourselves understand our own journeys as we not only come to know Jesus, but as we continue to learn of his way and walk with him. And the first thing that I want to touch on is that God in his love and his grace reaches out to every single one of us through Jesus, wherever we are and just as we are. He doesn't wait for us to be good enough. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together in life, to be successful, to be put together. He doesn't even wait for us sometimes to be ready. He comes for us to know him and be known by him, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter how bad we've messed up or where we might think we're headed. Jesus comes and draws us. He comes to be known. And we see that because if anyone deserves to be written off by God, it's Saul. You know, it's, it's bad enough that he was hurting people, that he was falsely imprisoning them, that he was persecuting people, physically harming them. But we get this idea from Jesus' response when he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That it's not just the people he's hurting, but it's the Lord God himself. It's Jesus Christ, the risen king, that he's persecuting. It's the name of Jesus that Saul's trying to wipe off the face of the earth. It was God and his offer for salvation, his grace-based salvation, that Saul found repugnant and refused to accept to the point of trying to destroy the people who represented it and lock them away. But God in his great mercy and in his great grace and patience and kindness and love doesn't strike him down dead and just get him out of the way. He doesn't write him off and maybe just make him mute for the rest of his life and powerless, uh, you know, lame potentially so that he couldn't do anything. God instead sends Jesus to him to demonstrate his great love, not just to Saul himself, but to all of us 
And he sets Saul's life in the right direction, in a direction that won't lead to his internal destruction, his own life's paralysis. He sets him aright. It's not just to those who, you know, are aware of their own fallenness, but Saul himself didn't actually believe that he needed a saviour. Saul himself, actually, we as Christians today look at Saul and think, oh, how could he be so foolish? How could he do such horrible things? But in the eyes of his culture, he was a success. He was doing the right thing. In his own eyes, his life was good and on track. He had things put together. God uses Saul for us today to say that whether you think you're terrible or whether you think you're great, you still need me. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all live in this kingdom of darkness on earth, surrounded by evil, evil in ourselves, sinning and falling short. And God says, hey, it doesn't have to be that way. And Saul, it doesn't have to be that way for you. And in 1 Timothy 1.16, Saul writes that he was shown mercy so that by his example as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And so even though as we read the story, it seems as though Saul encounters Jesus quite suddenly, he does, and dramatically and and powerfully and tangibly, there's actually a suggestion in Scripture elsewhere that Jesus had been working, working in his life and working on him for some time. This isn't a one-off event. And in Acts 26, 14, we get that hint. When Saul's retelling his conversion story to King Agrippa, he says this time that when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He adds this phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I had no idea what a goad was or what it meant to kick against it. So uh, as a dutiful lawyer, did my research and apparently a goad was this long prod. So uh, the picture there isn't the best representation, but this long, slender piece of timber, and it was blunt on one end and had a point on the other. Uh, And basically, to kick against the goads was this common phrase, common expression in ancient times that came from the, the very regular side of farmers trying to steer their oxen into a field. But ox, notoriously, are stubborn. They don't want to go where the farmer needs them to go. So to get them moving, the farmer picks up this goad and pokes them and taps them and sends them to try and go into the right direction. But often when the farmer does this, the ox, stubborn as they might be, kick against it and push back against the goad and try to resist the direction the farmer's trying to take them. You know, often at their own worst pain because they're being (laughs) stabbed even deeper by a goad. It doesn't go well for them. So when Jesus tells Saul that he's been kicking against the goads, plural, he's saying that he's been trying to get Saul's attention for some time, but Saul's been resisting. There comes a time, though, where, praise God, he finally sees on that road that Jesus is Lord, 
that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and he bows his knee, so to speak, on the road to Damascus. And you know, whether we see it or not all the time, Jesus is always working in our lives, drawing us, waiting for that Damascus time when we will know him as Lord and Saviour. How that happens for each of us looks very different. You know, some people have their dramatic and sudden experience with the person of Jesus Christ. They have this light bulb moment, we might say, where they suddenly, they become instantly aware Jesus is true, he's alive, he's real, he's Lord. But I think for the majority of us, what happens, and certainly this was my experience, is that he tends to, we tend to become aware of him over time, a bit like the dawn as it's rising. There's a sense that there is something else beyond ourselves, but it takes us this progression of the light growing until the noonday sun, when we see him clearly, and it's a subtle, gradual process, but we get there in the end, praise God. You know, and some of you here tonight might only be at seven o'clock in the morning type sun. Some of you might be at nine o'clock in the morning sun. Some of you may be at 12, but it's, it's happening. Jesus is calling you. He is drawing you. He wants you to know him. He's died and been resurrected for that very reason. He's not in the business of hiding himself. Some of you need to hear that today. The second aspect of Saul's conversion that I want to touch on is that going deeper in our journey with Jesus requires us to accept by faith that he is in fact Lord. When Saul encounters Jesus and recognizes him as Lord, he says that word, who are you Lord? Kyrios, Kyrios in the Greek. And it's a term of honor, of reverence, of respect that can mean Lord or Master or Sir. It's it's a title that's used for people who had absolute ownership rights over something or someone. So it's often used by slaves for their master in ancient times. Lord, Kyrios, not Nick, Kyrios, but uh, Kyrios, Lord. A person, thank goodness it's not Nick Kyrios, <laughs> a person who was Kyrios had the power and authority to determine what happens and when to anything and any person underneath their control. And in our Western democracy, it's a little bit hard for us to you know, truly grasp this concept because we live in such freedom, almost to our own detriment, really. We live in this world where we can pick and choose our own destinies, so to speak, at least in our own understanding. We understand maybe a bit more with objects. You know, if I, um, if I own a car or a phone or a house even, I get to pick and choose what happens to that property. You know, and we accept that. That's right. But with people, and probably rightly so, we're a little bit more hesitant to recognise that. So the best way I can probably uh, illustrate it is... Um, in medieval times, and Sarah and I recently went to Wales in the UK, and we stayed uh, in Cardiff for a night, and in Cardiff, and really across the whole Wales, there's, there's castles everywhere, and in Cardiff, uh, in the middle of the city, there's this big castle area, there's, 
It basically, and unfortunately my photos didn't come out very well for me to show you, but there's a big hill and on the top of the hill is the actual castle itself where the Lord himself and his family and those close to him would stay. And then down the bottom of the hill, there's this large flat grassed area where the tents would be pitched and where people could stay. And then surrounding that big open area is a, is a gigantic wall. And you know, in medieval times, lords had absolute sovereignty and control, not only over their land, but also the serfs and the people who lived within the four walls and the safety of the castle. And the lords would offer the serfs protection and security and safety and uh, provision. But the serfs had to respond with loyalty and service and faithfulness. They were Lord and they were subjects. There was Lord and there were subjects. And Saul discovers that Jesus is Lord and when he discovers that, his immediate response is to humble himself. He fasts, he repents, he prays for three days straight. I couldn't do that myself, but he does because he knows the Lord and he's obedient to Jesus' command to go into the city and to wait for further instruction. And, you know, I really felt challenged this week as I reflected afresh on this, what this word Lord really means when we say it. You know, we're saying to Jesus, you have absolute ownership of my life. You are the power over me, the authority, the control over me, and I'm saying yes to that. It really challenged me. Do I, do I really live my life each day as though that is who you are? And you know, the truth is whether I, I do or not, he is still Lord. You know, Scripture says that the Father has exalted him and that there will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can choose to do it in this life and enjoy the blessing of that, or we can do it on that fearsome day where we come before his judgment seat and are forced to admit what we couldn't in life and live separate from him for eternity. Are you my Lord? You know, I know and can accept him easily as my friend, as my comforter, as my helper, even as my saviour. But Lord, each day when I wake up, am I saying, Jesus, you have this day? That really convicted me. I wonder how you would answer it. My honest answer before him at that moment of conviction had to be, well, yeah, sometimes you are my Lord. I know that. But oftentimes, no. Oftentimes I fall Oftentimes I choose my own way, willingly, and you're not. But as I confessed that to him, I felt him say, remember what my word says. In 1 John 1.8 I say that if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just and will forgive your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. 
Then he took me to Hebrews 4, 15, 16, which says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. Jesus is Lord so that even when I fail, I can come to him and humbly and obediently say, I did it again, Lord, come and take my life. And as I humbled myself this week and rediscovered Jesus was my Lord, I discovered that he's a a Lord who understands me. You know, he empathizes with my weakness. He knows my struggles. He forgives my sin. He gives me access to the mercy and grace of God. And there's no better or safer place to be than under his rule and reign. You know, the kingdom of God and being in the kingdom of God requires us to accept him as king. To say, okay, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm giving you my life. Will you help me live that out, Lord? The last thing I want to touch on from Saul's conversion is just the incredible role that we see Ananias and the believers in Damascus play in Saul's journey. You know, it's, it's a profound thing. We need to try and catch the fact that Jesus comes to Saul and he doesn't do everything for Saul himself directly in that moment of revelation. The, one of the first things Jesus does with Saul is lead him to the church, to lead him to faithful believers He starts with Ananias, and then Saul comes into the community of believers in Damascus. So we read in verses 10 to 19 that Jesus uses Ananias to heal Saul, to baptize him, to lay hands on him as he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, to come and stay with them for the next few days. And they do that, Ananias and the other Christians do that in spite of overwhelming fear at the reputation that Saul carried. They do it in obedience, regardless of the risk that they might have felt to their own lives. And I really think the Lord is holding this up as an example for us today, as the kind of church he wants us to be for this generation. A church where he can draw people to himself, and then to help build them up, in the presence of brothers and sisters who will love them and meet them where they're at. A place where they too will be nurtured and restored and accepted and released into their call and the redemptive purposes of God for their life. That's what they did for Saul and that's what he's calling us to do. And we need to take that seriously. That's obedience. And so we'll come across some amongst us who are, the, who are still having that light rise from the dawn. You know, they won't necessarily be all the way there, but the Lord is leading them still and drawing them. There will be others who have known Jesus, have met him, do know him, but have been hurt 
and are only just now coming back into a place where they can become part of the fellowship with God. But we all, all of us, need a safe place where we can come and be encouraged in Christ. We can't do it alone. Jesus never called us to, but it requires us to have eyes to see the others around us, sitting next to us, in front of us, behind us, and welcoming in and being willing, in spite of the fear, to say yes to them. My conviction, really, this year has been that God wants uh, this church and our church in the city to be basically a spiritual hospital and a spiritual school where he can bring people that he's already doing the work of revealing himself to into a place where they discover him fully. He's going to meet people on the road to Damascus, really in many ways outside of what we do in evangelism or ministry out on the street. He'll do this work himself but he needs a place where he can bring these people. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a place myself in my own life where that's true. And I know this church is already that place in many respects, but we need to come back to it regularly and hold up Ananias and his community and say, yeah, that's where we're going. That's who we're choosing to be. <laughs> no. This morning, I preached the same message at Kubi, and uh, this is just the a sense of humour of God, really. And at first, I thought, oh, maybe this was a test, but I think it was really his proof that this is what he's saying. The, church, the service had finished, and uh, most of the people had had their morning tea and moved on, and uh, I was talking to one person, and this bloke just walked in off the street, Bill. Just never seen him before hadn't been there, just walked in at about 11 o'clock and he uh, opens up about his life and he starts talking about how he has bipolar and his wife has schizophrenia and, but they've been to church before and they, for all intensive purposes, love Jesus. But to be frank, he was an oddball. <laughs> it was hard to, for him to string complete sentences together and his memory seemed to come in and out and he, he wasn't... I mean, he was lovely, don't get me wrong. He was a beautiful man and I enjoyed thoroughly my time with him. But it was like the Lord was saying, see, (laughs) I I can throw the fish into the boat. But be aware and be ready and don't get busy about doing things like vacuuming the floors, as as is my task. But choose people. Love people. Welcome this bloke. You may never see him again. It doesn't matter. At this point in your life, in his life, I have drawn you together. Love him. Serve him. You don't know what that might do for this man. Jesus wants to work in us and through us to heal his broken and wounded people and to teach them how to walk with him and to help them discover his glorious call upon their lives as Lord. Some of them are going to look scary. Some of them might come with certain reputations. You know, imagine if John Kizon or uh, Ben Cousins in his wildest days were to walk in. What about prostitutes or drug addicts or those who look different? Will we see them as 
people on the way or will we ignore them? You know, when I was reflecting on it, it's not so much that we'll treat them poorly, it's just that we'll look at our feet and uh, hope that they don't come near us kind of thing. You know, we've got that Britishness still a bit where we don't want to be rude and we won't be rude, we won't necessarily send them away, but we don't go like this to them, we don't embrace them. And to be honest, Bill, when he hugged me, reeked of cigarettes. <laughs> I could just feel, you know, he, when I shook his hand, it was the, kind of that tar-stained hand uh, of a man who smoked a lot. But he's Jesus with skin on to us. And so it doesn't matter. We've had uh, an interesting thing happen at Kubi where a Muslim, a young Muslim couple from Afghanistan have started coming along to uh, some of our gatherings each week, during the week, not so much to church on a Sunday, but they come to the Wednesday morning, uh, they bring their kids to the Wednesday morning tots, Kubi tots, and then uh, they'll often come on a Friday night to the, um, to the Alpha Type group. And the, the, the young lady, the Muslim lady, openly confesses that she's had visions of, of a man who fits the description of Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus yet, and she's on that kind of 8 a.m., 9 a.m. Uh, way to discovering who Jesus truly is. But Jesus is drawing her and her husband and her kids. He's working in their lives, and he's bringing them to us. And, you know, it does us no good to say, well, you're a Muslim, get out, or you have no right to be here, or, or dress differently, or... None of that matters. What matters is that we see that Jesus wants them. He's after them. And he's not going to stop until that revelation moment where they call him Lord and they discover that grace and that mercy and that love that stands eternally for each one of us. Jesus doesn't ask us to fix people necessarily. He just says to obediently love and serve them wherever they're at And just as they are, just like he's done for you and for me. This morning I close with a story about a great artist. And this artist wanted to paint a magnificent portrait of the city he lived in, the particular part where he was. And he wanted it to be historical and accurate to reflect his community, so he chose to put certain characters in the picture. One of those people was a homeless man who was unkempt, ragged and filthy, but he was well known to the people because he'd sit on the same spot each day and ask for money. The artist approached him and said, I will pay you handsomely if you will come to my studio and let me paint you. So the next day the homeless man sets on his way to the artist's studio following his directions, but on the way he comes across a river and he stops off at the river and washes himself scrubs his grubby face, combs his hair, takes out of his knapsack his best clothes, his only real good set of clothes. And he heads off again and arrives at the art studio. And the artist opens the door, sees the man, and his face falls. And with sadness in his voice, he says, I'm very sorry, but for this painting of mine to have been true... You were needed just as you're invited and no other way. And he turns him away and the homeless man goes on. And the point is this. Jesus wants to meet with us, comes to meet with us wherever we are at in life. 
and just as we are. No other way. But as he does, as our Lord, we need to humble ourselves and obey. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.